Right, okay. Someone there left my notes upside down. <laughs> Heard a nice story. I know, that's right. It's, oh, yes. And, uh, no, actually, this isn't Bible teaching. Actually, it's one long prophecy. Um, I heard a story once, this church, they'd had a visiting speaker and there was a bit of a buzz going round after he left. And it turned out that it's because he'd left his notes in the pulpit, you see. Well, how often do you get a chance to see visiting speakers' notes? And these were being passed round. And what was of, uh, you know, kind of such interest to everyone is at a certain point in his notes, there was this, this sentence and it was underlined in red ink. Right, so really draw attention to it. And on his notes, it read, Shout loud, argument weak. <laughs> right, okay. Well, we're, we're looking at the kind of the spiritual significance of uh, the Lord's Supper, and we've seen its individual significance that obviously, as we eat the food. It's pointing back to what Jesus has done for us as individuals on the cross when he died. And uh, obviously, you know, the, the challenge for us to be maintaining right fellowship with Jesus in our individual relationship with him. And to that extent, we're seeing that the Lord's Supper is actually the new covenant meal. Okay. But where we're going now is we're going to see the significance of the Lord's Supper in regard to its corporate aspect. And as we look at this, we're going to see that the Lord's Supper actually focuses us on something that I think is one of the most important strands of teaching in the New Testament, and indeed the Old Testament, as I'll show you. And it is also one of the most neglected and misunderstood strands of teaching in the New Testament. And it's coming to understand that our relationship with the Lord can only be gauged by the quality of our relationships with other people. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this talk. Because although the Lord calls us to individual discipleship, of course he does, you individually have a relationship with Jesus. And nothing must ever be allowed to touch that. But nevertheless, the Lord has so arranged things that he wants our individual relationship with him to grow and to develop in the context of being part of a local church. So that although we have individual relationship with Jesus, of course we do. But nevertheless, one of the great enemies of the Christian is individualism. And that is why we are always called into corporate fellowship. Now in the Old Covenant, we've already seen God called a nation of people to himself. Now, a nation is millions of people. That is very corporate. And in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, it's much the same. We are called to be part of the ecclesia, the church of Jesus Christ. And we saw last time in 1 Peter chapter 2, how Peter echoed what we saw in Exodus 19 of the Old Covenant, when he says, look, you're being built together 
into a spiritual temple and that together you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood belonging to God. And so therefore, what we've got to concentrate on here is that there is no such thing as a lone Christian life. Now, obviously, if you have someone who's in jail for their faith in solitary confinement for years at a time, the Lord will be everything they need because there's no way they can get to have fellowship with other people. But our normative experience should be that we can only grow within the context of fellowship with other believers. Now, let's go back to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. And let's read verses 4 and 5 again. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Now, can you see, he's addressing them as individuals. Individually, we are stones. But he says we're being built together. And those are the two sides of this coin that we need to see. We are individuals before the Lord. Of course we are. But as individuals, we are kidding ourselves if we think that we can live the Christian life and grow in the Lord if we are not doing that in the context of ongoing significant fellowship with other believers who individually are seeking to do the same. There's the individual, but there is the corporate, and they must always be held together in tension. Go back to 1 Corinthians 12. And in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27, we read, Now you are the body of Christ. And the you there is plural. He's saying you, the whole church in Corinth. You are the body of Christ, corporate. And each one of you is a part of it. There's the individual. So there must forever in our discipleship be the individual you and the corporate you. There's the you as an individual, but there's the you that you are part of corporately. And that is forever the balance we see in Scripture. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to read verse 16 to 17. <clears throat> and he says... Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. Now, that word participation, all right, and some translations translate that communion. It's the, it's the word koinonia, it's fellowship. It's fellowship. And that's why communion is probably the one phrase that gets used for the Lord's Supper that isn't really biblically very accurate because it just doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't. Communion just translates the word fellowship, you see. And so what we're seeing here at the heart of the Lord's Supper, yeah, there's fellowship with Jesus, 
that participation, that fellowship, that koinonia with Jesus and what he's done. But as we're going to see, that participation, that fellowship must equally be with those with whom the Lord has put us into fellowship with. And fellowship is always a sharing. It's always a coming together as individuals to form something corporate that is more than the than the sum of the individual parts. And, and, and in verse 16, you've got, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? There's the individual. That's Jesus' blood, his sacrifice for you on the cross. That's the individual. But in verse 17, he says, there's one loaf, we who are many are one body. And there's the corporate. Can you see? All the time this balance, there's you there's me as individuals, but there's the corporate gathering of the church, that fellowship together, and you can never truly have one without the other. And also, at the love feast, when a church comes together, you have the loaf and you have the cup as part of the meal. Now let's just think about that. Get, get the picture there, bread. How do you make bread? Individual grains of wheat are processed together in such a way that one loaf comes out. Can you see? Individuals are processed into the corporate. Many individual grains, but the end result is, is one thing, a corporate thing. Or, let, let's think in terms of uh, the wine. How do you make wine? You take individual grapes, that's you and I as individuals, but you process it together and it comes out one bottle of wine. There's the corporate. Now, I'm not talking about the loss of individuality. I'm not talking about these silly teachings you find somewhere where people say that fellowship is the loss of your individuality. That's crazy. And you'll normally find when you get teachings like that, there are people at the top saying, you've got to submit to us. And the last thing they want are people who are individuals. Because authoritarian leaders aren't too keen on people thinking for themselves because that makes them ask questions. Whereas genuine spiritual leadership, not only is it not threatened by people asking questions, it teaches people to ask questions. That's the difference between biblical and unbiblical leadership. But can you see the point here? The individual grains of wheat into one loaf, individual grapes into one cup, one bottle of wine. And that's the picture. All the time, it's the individual, you and I, becoming more and more a part of the something corporate. And I want us to look at why this is so important. And the reason is quite simply that you and I are made in the image of God. Well, that's not very profound, Beresford. We knew that. Right, okay, but think of it from this point of view. We're made in the image of God, but God in himself is a plurality. God exists as three persons. Now again, as I said in an earlier talk, don't ask me to explain that. I don't have to. I believe it because it's what Scripture teaches. Interestingly enough, we see this in the very first verse of Scripture. The very first sentence in Scripture is, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now I don't speak Hebrew. I don't speak Greek. I'm dependent on other experts to give me the information I need. 
But the information that I glean about that is that in the Hebrew, when it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the word for God is Elohim. And in the Hebrew, im, I am, is a plural. So you get a seraph, but you get more than one seraphim. One cherub, more than one cherubim. The Hebrew im apparently is our s. It speaks of plurality. So there, in the beginning, God, and that word is Elohim. So you think, well, okay, but well, then shouldn't that be translated, in the beginning, the gods? No, it shouldn't, and for this reason. Because apparently the verb sets the noun or something like that, and I've even got too technical, technical for myself there. But when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the verb create there is in the singular. And that's why you don't translate Elohim in the plural. So it should be, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But the point is, the word for God implies the plurality, but the noun created implies a singularity. My goodness! But then, when you keep reading through the Bible, and when you realise that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, well, that kind of starts to make sense, doesn't it? that there is the Trinity by implication in the very first verse of the Bible. But still in Genesis chapter 1, and just to show you this very, very clearly, let's go to um, verse 26. And these are kind of rather astounding verses if you've never actually really looked at them. Genesis 1 verse 26. Now this is the last bit of creating God did. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now it does not read, and God said, let me make man in my image. It definitely says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Us, who? Father, Son and Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've ever connected but when Jesus was hanging on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He wasn't merely repeating himself. That wasn't tautology for some kind of effect. My God, Father, my God, Holy Spirit, why have you forsaken me? He was the third member of the Trinity. He said, My God, my God, because he was talking to the other two persons in the Godhead. Don't ask me to explain it, but I believe it, I know it, because it's what Scripture teaches. Um, if you go over into uh, chapter 3 and verse 22. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. Us? Who? Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so what we see here is that when we talk about God, we speak of him in the singular. And of course, the Lord your God is one Lord. Of course. But when God speaks of himself, he speaks of himself in the plural. Let us make man in our image. And again, in John 14, in one of the earlier talks, we saw Jesus saying about, well, look, if you love me, obey my commandments, and I will come and live with you, and my Father will come and live with you, and he'd already said, the Holy Spirit will live with you. So, what we're basically seeing here, the very nature of God is singularity 
in plurality. God, in his very essence and nature, contains both individuality, yet corporate fellowship. The Trinity, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, are in perfect, eternal fellowship with each other. They need no one else, they need nothing else. Sometimes you get this uh, rather, rather strange idea that crops up about that God created humanity because he was lonely and wanted someone to have fellowship with. That's nonsense. God didn't create humanity because he was lonely. Father, Son and Holy Spirit in perfect uh, community and fellowship with each other. No, he created humanity because he had such a good thing going he wanted to share it with others. But God didn't do it because he needed to. God needs nothing. God just does what he wants. And he wanted a family. But can you see the point here? That when we're looking at the very nature of God, we see individuality, and yet we see corporate fellowship together. And that is why the only way we can ever begin to approach who we should be and come into our inheritance and our redemption is realising that the only way that I can increasingly become who I am individually in Jesus is to be doing it in fellowship with other believers as part of the corporate church. But you cannot do it individualistically on your own because you weren't designed to do it individualistically on his own. God does not do anything individualistically on his own. Whatever the Father does, the Son and the Holy Spirit does. Whatever Jesus does, the Father and the Holy Spirit does. Whatever the Holy Spirit does, the Father and Jesus are doing. That's fellowship. Individuals in fellowship with each other. So fellowship is built into the very nature of God and we are created in the image of God. Now let's very quickly just remind ourselves of the consequences of Adam's sinning. The moment Adam ate the fruit that had been forbidden him, sin came into the world. He and Eve died spiritually on the spot. And as a result of that, later they died physically. Because the moment they died spiritually, decay set into the universe and into their physical bodies. But let's, what exactly happened? What were the consequences of Adam's sin? Firstly, he was separated from God. And what did he do? When the Lord God came walking in the garden, rather than running up to him for a chat, which is what would have happened before, he ran and hid. So Adam sinned, he was separated from God and ran away and hid from him. Secondly, he was separated from Eve, his wife. When God said, Adam, what have you done? What did he say? Well, the woman, excuse number one, who you gave me, it's your fault, Lord. Immediately, he'd known perfect harmony with his wife. Now, he's separated from her. And rather than take responsibility for what he had done, he blamed his wife. So, he's fallen out with the Lord, and there's division between him and the Lord. He's fallen out with his wife now. There is division between him and his fellow man. Now, what was the third thing that happened? Well, he was separated from himself. 
Now, what do I mean by that? Up to that time, Adam was in perfect physical, mental, and emotional balance. The moment he sinned, he experienced embarrassment at being naked. Now, there was nothing wrong with the fact that he and his wife were naked. They were man and wife, and there was no one else to look, no one peeking, okay? But immediately, he's embarrassed about being naked. Suddenly, he's got hang-ups. And here is where psychological and emotional hang-ups come from. So what we see, Adam was separated from God. There's the spiritual problem. He was separated from his fellow man, in this case his wife, who wasn't his fellow man. I'll say that again. He was separated from his fellow woman, right? Social problems. And he was separated from himself. Mental, emotional problems. Okay. And so, as sinners, we are born up the spout in three ways. We're completely up the spout in that we don't have a relationship with God. We're all screwed up there. We're completely screwed up in our relationships to other people. And we are completely screwed up in our relationships with ourselves. Because if you were at perfect peace with yourself, you would never have mental and emotional hang-ups. And we know we all do. So here are the three areas where separation came in, as far as Adam was concerned. Okay. And Jesus died on the cross so that we could be restored in each of these areas. That we could be restored in regards to our relationship with God. That we could be restored in regards to our relationship with ourselves and find wholeness because Jesus lives in us. And of course, he's come to restore us in regards to our relationship with other people. Okay. Now, just hold that. We'll be back to it shortly. And I want to show you something about the Ten Commandments. Something about the Old Covenant, but particularly homing in on the, uh, old, the, the actual Ten Commandments. Now remember, we've seen Adam went up the spout in regards to God, in regards to his fellow man, and in regards to himself. Now bearing that in mind, let me show you this about the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to read through it, but obviously this is Exodus 20, verse 1 to 17. But I'm just going to list the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods, number one. Number two, no idols to be worshipped. And what that's meaning is no idolatrous depictions of God. Right? No taking the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Honour your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbour. Do not covet. Now, what I want to show you, there's an order there. And the order is this. Commandments 1 to 4 are to do with your relationship with God. No other gods, no idols to be worshipped, no taking the name of the Lord in vain, and keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath because it was a day set apart for the Lord. The first four commandments relate to your relationship with God. That was the first area Adam went up the spout when he sinned. He ran away from God. Now then, commandments 5 to 9 
Honour your father and mother, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony against your neighbour. Those commandments relate to your relationship towards other people. The second area that Adam was up the spout in regards to. And number ten is the clincher. Do not covet. And the thing about do not covet is that is a purely internal affair and relates to our relationship with ourselves. By which I mean this, the other commandments, honour father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, all those are what you do or don't do to other people, they're actions that relate to other people. Do not covet is an action that happens purely inside you personally. Can you see? Because it's an internal attitude. So here we see an order in the Ten Commandments. And the progressive order is God, others, and yourself. Now hold that. God, others, and yourself. And that's exactly what we saw with Adam sinning. It, screw, it screwed him up in regards to God, in regards to others, and in regards to himself. Now, let's home in a bit more on this do not covet. This is interesting. Go to Luke 18. Luke 18. I've got a bit of a digression going here, but it will end up back to the main point we need to understand, but it will illuminate it. Luke 18 and verse 18. This might make sense of this story. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honour your mother and father. It's Numbers 5 to 9. Okay. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Now the first thing I want you to understand there is basically someone comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And basically, Jesus lays the Ten Commandments on him. But note, Jesus makes no mention of the first four that relate to loving God. All right? And as we're going to see, the reason he leaves them out and goes straight to Numbers 5 to 9, which relate to how you deal with other people, the reason that Jesus did that, and we're going to see this in other places in Scripture, is because... He didn't need to say, love God. Because what we're going to see, if you truly love God, you will truly love other people. So the test of whether or not someone loves the Lord is not, hey, do you love Jesus? It's, hey, do you love other people? That's the only test for whether we genuinely love the Lord. Do we love other people? The fundamental thing we're going to be seeing in this talk is the condition of your relationship with God is going to be shown 
in the condition of your relationship with other people. That is the litmus test of whether or not we are actually in ongoing fellowship with God. But what I want to home in on here is that as Jesus homed in on commandments 5 to 9, all the ones that related to your relationship with other people, this young man replied, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, this is where do not covet comes in, because when it comes to those five, yes, you can have actually not murdered anyone. I personally haven't yet. <laughs> you can honour your father and mother. You can refrain from committing adultery. Can you see? So this young man said, well, yeah, um, yeah, I've, I've done all them. Yeah, that's, that's right. Lord, count me in. So what does Jesus do next? Which commandment did he leave out? Well, he left out the first four because they relate to God. And, and he's saying to this young man, well, look, you know, you'll find out if you love God because you'll love your brother. So are you obeying these commandments? But what was the other one Jesus left out? Do not covet. And so then Jesus said, oh, right, okay, well, you've done all them, have you? Wow, cool, you're pretty close. I'll tell you what, this will get you in. Sell everything you've got and give it away. And the young man went away sad. Why? That was Jesus' way of laying commandment number 10 on him. Do not covet. Now, can you see what's happening here? When Jesus hit him with commandments 5 to 9, do not commit adultery, do not steal, the young man said, don't anyway. All right? So then Jesus hit him with the internal one. Do not covet. And that completely undid him. Why? Because he knew that his whole life was based on covetousness. And Jesus proved it to him by saying, well, give everything you got away then. So can you see that what we've got here in the Ten Commandments, it's number ten, it's this one that relates to how you're screwed up in your relationship with yourself, do not covet, that is the one that gets you every time. Let's now go to Paul in Romans 7. In Romans 7. This is fascinating. Romans 7, and we're going to read the second half of verse 7 onto verse 8. Now then, listen to this. Paul says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. Now, in the last talk, what did we see? The Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, was there not so you could obey it. It was there to show you you couldn't obey it, that you were a sinner. And then Paul says, he says, look, the law showed me I was a sinner. Now how? For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. So what's going on here? Well, remember, in Galatians, Paul said that when he was a Pharisee, before he was converted, he says that he was, as to the law, blameless. Now, he wasn't lying. He wasn't kidding himself. Paul had honoured his father and mother. He'd never murdered. He'd never committed adultery. He'd never stolen. He'd never told lies. And so he said, as to the law, he was blameless. So as he read the law of Moses, 
Was it telling him he was a sinner? No, it was confirming to him how righteous he was. And then one day, commandment number 10, jumped up, and as we say in England, gave him a headbutt. And he suddenly realised, I'm full of covetousness. And that was how Paul the Apostle was convicted by the Holy Spirit through the law. In regards to God, Paul assumed, yeah, I'm doing all that, I'm home dry. In regards to his neighbour, yeah, I'm not doing bad things, I'm home dry. I mean, never mind that I'm having Christians killed, but nevertheless, I'm home dry. But then eventually, this do not covet hit him. And when he looked into his heart honestly, whereas he could say he'd never committed adultery, could he honestly say that he wasn't covetous? No, he couldn't. Because all the other laws are matters of external action. Do not covet internalizes your sinful condition. No one can stop coveting what they shouldn't have. And this is why, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes along and he says, look, what you've got to understand, and here is where the law of itself was insufficient, and now I'm taking you there directly. Do not covet was there hinting at it, but now I'm going to lay it on you properly. And Jesus said, you might never have committed adultery, but if you've looked on another man's wife lustfully, as far as I'm concerned, you have. What the law merely externalised, Jesus internalised. And Paul realised that, and he realised that it was there in the law all the time. Paul could read laws 1 to 9 and mark himself 10 out of 10. But in an honest moment, brought on only because the Holy Spirit was convicting him, he suddenly got to do not covet. And he realised that sin wasn't so much a matter of what you do outwardly, it's what you are inwardly. All right. So then, what we're seeing here is that Adam was separated from God, his neighbour and himself. We're seeing here in the Ten Commandments that order. There's God, there's your neighbour and there's yourself. Okay? And that it's the internal one, do not covet, that undoes you before God and makes you realise that you are sinful through and through. Now go to Mark, chapter 12. Back to Mark. Well, not back to Mark, we haven't been there yet. But Mark chapter 12. I'm going to read verse 28 to 30, 31. Now then, one of the teachers of the law, um, hang on, Mark 12, yeah. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now that's Deuteronomy chapter 6. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. And that's Leviticus 19. There is no commandment greater than these. And what Jesus is saying there is 
that when it comes to understanding the work that God is doing, you cannot separate love the Lord your God from love your neighbour as you love yourself. There is no separating those two things. They are two sides of the same coin. If one is true, the other will be true. If one isn't true, then the other one isn't true either. Okay, And this is what undoes in us what Adam mucked up when he sinned. Adam mucked up his relationship with God. Well, love the Lord your God puts that right. He mucked up his relationship with others. Love your neighbour as yourself. Okay, um, that undoes that one. Okay, but what we've got to realise here is this. You get a lot of nonsense today about you've got to learn to love yourself. Your problems stem from the fact that you don't love yourself enough. Okay, now then, when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, the problem was this. He certainly stopped loving God. He certainly stopped loving his neighbour. Question, did he stop loving himself? No, he loved himself more than he should have done. What went wrong in the Garden of Eden was that Adam loved himself more than he loved God and more than he loved his neighbour. The essence of sinfulness is self love to the exclusion of all else. The Bible nowhere says it's wrong to love yourself. You can't help it. God designed you to love yourself. The essence of sin is when you love yourself more than God and more than others. Alright. Now then, that is why the tenth commandment is the one that undoes us. Why? Because it says, do not covet. So what's the thing about coveting? Coveting ultimately is, I want. What's one of the most important things you have to train out of your children? I want. Okay? What lies behind, I want? Well, what lies behind it is this. You love yourself more than you love God and more than you love your neighbour. That is what covetousness actually is. It's the big I want. And that is why the heart of discipleship is carrying the cross. It's denying yourself. And what did Jesus do when he carried the cross? He went and died on it. And why are we to carry the cross? It's because daily we're to die to ourselves. Not stop loving ourselves, but stop loving ourselves more than anybody else. That's what we've got to stop doing. And think of it in terms of this, the cross. Do an I and then cross it out. That's what the cross is about. Unless you deny yourself and carry your cross, you cannot be my disciple. So can you see how the do not covet there is at the heart of it? The problem is we don't love God. The problem is we don't therefore love our neighbour. And the problem is because we love ourselves so much. The work the Lord's doing in us is to stop us loving ourselves so much and to start putting God and others first. Now then, digression over there, but back to the rich young ruler and what I said earlier. The reason when Jesus challenged him and started with his relationship with his neighbour. 
He, Jesus didn't say, well, you know, didn't lay the first four commandments on him about loving God. He only laid the ones on him about loving your neighbour. And of course, the reason for it is quite simply that Jesus worked on the assumption that if you love God, you can quite simply see that by whether or not you love your brother. So in actual fact, the Bible never challenges us in isolation, do you love God? Never. The challenge is, do you love your neighbour? Because that's where the rubber hits the road. Love God and love your neighbour as yourself. Can you see the point? So Jesus' way of saying to someone, do you love God, was saying, are you loving your neighbour? Because the answer to I love God is I love my neighbour. And what we're going to see, if the answer is I don't love my neighbour, then the Bible says that you don't love God. I'm not saying you're not necessarily a believer, but you are not loving God at that moment if you're not loving your neighbour. So what we've got here is this foundational principle that we've seen even enshrined in the Ten Commandments, and it's this. Our relationship with God is gauged by our relationship with others. And we saw last time that in the New Covenant, the sign of the New Covenant is that God's laws are now written on our hearts. So therefore, we should be being changed from the inside out. So therefore, this principle is going to hold true. If I'm being brought more and more into loving God, more than I love myself, then that has got to mean that I am loving my brother more than I am loving myself. But if I'm not loving my brother more than I love myself, then we're going to see that the Bible says that I'm kidding myself if I then claim to be loving God more than I love myself. Okay. So, last time we saw that there were four requirements for a covenant. All right? The founding sacrifice, the parties defined, the terms outline and the sign of the covenant. Now I mentioned in an earlier talk that one of the signs of a covenant in the Old Testament could be eating together. Now go to Genesis chapter 31 and I'm going to show you one such example. Genesis 31 and I'm going to start reading from verse 43. Genesis 31 verse 43. Um, Laban answered Jacob, The women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine, or about the children they have born? Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. We saw that's one of the things they did as well. He said to his relatives, Gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegus Ahadatha, and Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. This is why it was called Galid. It was also called Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. 
If you will treat my daughters, or if you take any wives beside my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, Here is this heap and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will no, not go past this heap to your side to harm you and you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and God of their father judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them, and he left and returned home. What we've got here, we've got two people who have been at war with each other. Laban and Jacob did not get on, and they had treated each other badly. They decided to call a truce, and they made a covenant. And in this covenant, it was a parity covenant, they agreed to be nice to each other and to stop sinning against each other. How did they bind that covenant on each other? They ate together. They ate together. That is precisely in regards to the corporate aspect that the love feast is for. In its corporate aspect, the love feast is a meal of reconciliation between people who have sinned with each other. It's a meal of reconciliation for people who have treated each other badly and who are saying, I am sorry that I have treated you badly and I want to be in covenant with you to love you and to treat you properly. It was realising that if God has forgiven me then I have got to make sure I'm in right relationship with others, forgiving them. Okay. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and God of their father judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them, and he left. Now, what were the abuses of the Lord's Supper at Corinth? What were the things that were going wrong? Well, yeah, we've seen that people were getting drunk, and that wasn't a particularly good thing to do. But the other thing that Paul homes in on is that they were starting, some of them were starting, and they were eating all the food before everyone else was there. Now that seems a bit of a strange thing for us, uh, but let me explain the background to it. In the ancient world, the poor were really poor. And when churches were coming together, it wasn't a day off, not like we get. So people went there straight from work. Now, the richer people in the church, and they would have been the people who opened their homes for it, because the poor wouldn't have had big homes, the slaves wouldn't have had any homes. So the richer folk would open their houses for it. And it would have been the case as well that the richer folk, well, they could get there earlier because they could get off work earlier. Maybe they worked for themselves. Whereas the poorer folks, they would have got there last because they had to work all the hours under the sun. And it's probably the case for, the, for poor believers in the early church. 
the love feast was probably the only good meal they got all week because they were poor. And what's happening at Corinth, the richer folk whose homes it's in, are tucking into the food before the poor ones even get there. Well, the poor didn't have much food to use, and the whole idea of this is sharing. And the reason that Paul says, look, this is absolutely outrageous what you're doing. I mean, he says it's outrageous that you're being immoral at the temple of, Di you know, down at the temple of Aphrodite. And he says it's outrageous that you're getting drunk. But he said it is outrageous that you're starting the meal before everyone is even there. And the outrage at the love feast is that the very meal that was celebrating their fellowship together in the Lord, they were abusing each other and they were being selfish and they were not loving each other. And that is why Paul says such dreadful judgment was coming on them. And so the corporate principle of the Lord's Supper is simply this. If I am in fellowship with the Lord... Now, the individual aspect is that I'm saved, I'm in the kingdom, Jesus has saved me, I'm going to heaven. But the corporate aspect is now, okay, so if I'm going to say I'm in ongoing fellowship with, with, with the Lord, then that will show in my fellowship with other people. If I'm right with God, I will know that because I am also going to be right with my brothers and sisters. Our relationship to God is gauged by our relationship with others. Let's see this more in Scripture. Go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Hi, babe, how are you doing? Matthew chapter 5. Hey, did you want to say hello? <laughs> Just cut away. I'm going to say hello to the people. <laughs> Where's mummy, hey? She's over there. Okay. Oh, you make sure that doesn't fall off for me. Okay. Right, okay, um, yeah, Matthew 5 and uh, verse 23, and we read this. Yeah? Could you tell them what my name is and where I live? This is Bethany and she lives in England. Okay? <laughs> do you want to go back to mummy or do you want to stay there? Stay I've got there. to keep talking, okay? Okay, right, thank you, darling. <laughs> do you know why she's so beautiful? She's full of my chromosomes. <laughs> Right. <laughs> do you think Belinda's have got something to do with it as well? The scripture says, don't lie to one another. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, yeah, Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, and in verse 23, Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there remember that your brother has got something against you, i.e. you have sinned against the brother, right? So they've got something against you because you've sinned against them. He says, if that is the case, then he says, and I've lost my... <laughs> oh yeah, then he says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So you see what Jesus is saying? It's no use worshipping God and saying, right, I'm coming to worship the Lord, if you suddenly realise, whoops, I've sinned against someone and I haven't put it right. He says, that's a nonsense. Go get right with your brother and then come and worship the Lord. Oh, hang on, base. I'll hold that because it mustn't go over there. That's right, I'll make sure it doesn't. Let me do that up. And you put that there, okay? Make sure it doesn't spill, so if it goes on the tape recorder, it'll be bad, okay? 
Yeah, so, so what Jesus is saying is if, if you're going to be right with God, then you've got to get right with your brother. It's as simple as that. Go over to chapter 6. Um, chapter 6 and verses 9 to 15. Like the Lord's Prayer, although really this should be the disciples' prayer. The Lord never had to pray this. This is for us to pray, all right? And he says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now what we do, we say, Lord, forgive me my sins. Well, that on its own isn't really a biblical prayer. The biblical prayer is, Lord, I have forgiven people who have sinned against me. Lord, forgive me. Kissy. That's what Jesus builds in here. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now listen to this. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now Jesus isn't saying, and this means you're not going to go to heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about justification. Yeah, when you die, you'll go to heaven. He's talking about your ongoing relationship with God now. You see, if you've sinned, when you sin, you fall out of fellowship with God. And you're not back in fellowship with God until you've confessed that sin, all right? So let's say I, I kind of, you know, I, I blow my top with someone or something like that, okay? And then I have to say, oh Lord, I'm, I'm sorry, I blew my top. And I know that until I say sorry, you and I aren't going to be in fellowship. But if in the meantime... Uh, I hear that someone's told a lie about me or something and I'm not forgiving them. Then until I forgive them for their sin against me, the Lord isn't going to forgive me for my sin against him. Do you see what I mean? So, so if I've sinned against someone and I haven't put that right with them, if I say, oh Lord, I'm sorry for that sin, and the Lord says, nah, sorry. What? Not talking to you. Oh Lord, no, I've sinned against you. Lord, I'm sorry for that. No, I'm not, not. Why aren't you talking to me? Well, because you've, you haven't said sorry to them for that sin against them. Oh, so when are you going to talk to me? Well, when you've said sorry to them. So then you go say sorry to them and then you can talk to the Lord and he'll talk back if you see what I mean. Can you see, sin always breaks our relationship with the Lord. But even if I'm saying sorry to God for something I've done against him, he ain't going to forgive me unless I have put myself right with anyone who sinned against me. It's incredible. Go to James. Go to James. Seeing the simple fact our relationship with the Lord is gauged by our relationship with other people. And there's no getting round this. Right, James, chapter 2, first of all. And he says, uh, James 2, verses 8 to 9. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, what's the royal law? Hmm. Well, the royal law is James' way of talking about the new covenant. That's the royal law. The old covenant law was do this and live. No, the royal law is if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. That's right. So the royal law, this is our responsibilities under the new covenant. And uh, so he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, and then he quotes, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. Oh, hang on, no, James, you lift a bit out. Shouldn't that be love the Lord your God first? But no, there's no need for it. Because if you love God, you'll love your neighbour. I mean, James weren't going to waste words here. 
I mean, you wouldn't find James saying, hey, do you love the Lord, brother? He'd look to see if you love your brother. So therefore, the royal law is love your neighbour as yourself. And you don't need the first bit, love God and your neighbour as yourself, because you'll find out if someone loves God by whether or not they're loving their neighbour. It's as simple as that. But he says, if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. You see, your relationship with God is revealed in your relationship with others. Go down to verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? So we're saying, I love Jesus, I trust Jesus, right? And he says, um, can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So what's James saying? Well, you know, you can kid yourself about loving the Lord, but the point is, when a brother comes along in need, uh, what are you doing about it? You see? That's, 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 that's the rub. Go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Read verse 5 to 7 first. one john one five to seven he says this is the message we have heard from him and declare it to you god is light in him there is no darkness at all if we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness we lie and do not live by the truth so what's this darkness but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So what's this light and this darkness? The darkness is if you're not in fellowship with your brother and sister, you're not in fellowship with God. And in order to have the blood of Jesus purifying you from all sin, there's a condition and it's this. We have fellowship with one another. We're in the light. So to be in the light with someone is to be in right relationship with them. There is no undealt with sin in your heart pertaining to them. If you've sinned against them, you've said sorry. You were right with them. If that is the case, then you're in fellowship with God. But if you have sinned against others and have not put that right with them, then you are not in fellowship with God, you are in the darkness still. Go over to chapter 2, read verse 3 and 4. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Now again, this isn't John saying, are you born again or not? This knowing is this experiential, it's this ongoing relationship with him. So he's saying, we know that we are in ongoing relationship with God if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. Um, now, down into verse 16. Um, I've gone and got completely lost there. Hang on. Uh, yeah, so, so, um, yeah, that's right. Now go on to verse 9. Sorry about that. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. And I'll tell you one of the great dangers, if you have sin in your heart against others that you have not put right with them, and you know you should, but it's, I'm not going to apologise to them, you're in darkness. And if you maintain that position, I'm not going to get right with my brother or my sister or whatever, then the trouble is you won't know where you're going. You'll end up deceived. You won't know you're deceived. You'll be out of fellowship with the Lord and you won't even realise it because you'll end up in the darkness of deception. But can you see what John is saying here? To say that you're loving God while hating your brother is a nonsense. To say that you're in fellowship with the Lord when you're out of fellowship with someone else. Now I'm talking about because of your fault. You can't have control over others in relationship to you. But this is being out of fellowship with someone because you've sinned. Whether they may or may not have sinned is not the issue. You have. I have. If I've got a sin against someone that I have not put right, then I am not in fellowship with God until I do put that right. Go over to chapter 3, verse 16. He says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid, his life, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Um, whoops, I've lost. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. All the time, your relationship with God is gauged by your relationship with others. And if you can look on brothers and sisters in need and not help when you're able to, if you can have resentment against brothers and sisters who you're not talking to, or, you know, and it, this is your fault, then you're not in ongoing fellowship with God. Uh, go to chapter 4, verse 19. And he says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, Whoever loves God, must also love his brother. Now, can you see this at the deepest level of the teaching of Scripture? Again and again and again, Jesus and then the apostolic writers of the New Testament make it absolutely clear that if we are in wrong relationship towards somebody else, then by definition, we are in wrong relationship towards the Lord. And we can only say that we are in right relationship with the Lord when we are truly in right relationship with other people. Can you see? Love the Lord your God 
love your neighbours yourself. And they are two sides of the coin. So much so that scripture doesn't always even refer to the love God bit. It just refers to love your neighbours yourself. And in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself is a synonym for loving the Lord your God. Because if you love God, you will love your brother. It's as simple as that. Now, with that under our belt, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11 and look again at these verses about the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11. Right, now then. Let's just start reading from um, verse 17. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together, there are factions among you. Now, this is people falling out with each other because of their own little pet doctrinal emphases. These are people who are more concerned to be proved right and to make sure people agree with them than they are to love their brothers and sisters and to be in fellowship with them. That's what factiousness is. Whenever you get factiousness, it doesn't matter what the issue is, the issue isn't the issue. The doctrinal issue is a cover for something underneath, and the something underneath are personality clashes, their selfishness, their people not liking someone, feeling affronted by someone. These are the problems we need to work out in fellowship with each other, not be dividing off and I'm not having anything to do with you all the time. The whole push here is being in right relationship with each other. Now let's, let's just read verses 23 to 26. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's the individual aspect. We come to the Lord's Supper and we, Jesus has saved us. You know, we, we are saved. The bread and, and, and the cup. This is his body broken on the cross for me. This is his blood shed on the cross for me so that I, Beresford, as an individual, can be saved. But look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Oh my goodness, what does that mean? Well, the whole point is, if we come to the Lord's Supper and eat it unworthily, which we're going to see is we've got sin in our lives that we haven't put right yet, the whole point is we are sinning against the Lord at the very point where we're meant to be celebrating the fact that he's forgiven us of our sins. And Paul's saying, that's ridiculous. You know, in the very way that you're eating, you know, the bread and drinking the cup as part of the meal, you're doing that, which is proclaiming, you know, I'm right with you, Lord, thank you for forgiving me, at the very moment when you've got sin in your heart that hasn't been dealt with. 
He's saying, no, that's crazy. That is a sin against everything that Jesus did on the cross. Okay. But what we've got to say is, okay, so what is this unworthy manner? How, how were the Corinthians eating in an unworthy manner? I mean, what does it mean, eating in an unworthy manner? I mean, were they dribbling? Were they talking with their mouth full or something? How do you eat in an unworthy manner? Well, of course, what it's talking about here is, and let's now read verse 28 and 29, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now then, they were partaking of the meal in an unworthy manner, and this unworthy manner is because they weren't recognising the body of the Lord. Huh? What body of the Lord? Well, we saw it a couple of talks ago. The church is the body of the Lord. To eat without discerning, without recognising, without understanding the body of the Lord is that you're eating this meal in isolation, individualistically, without looking out to those you are eating and drinking with and saying, hey, am I right with them? That's the point. The Corinthians were partaking of the love feast while they were sinning against each other without putting that sin right. And therefore, they weren't recognising the body of the Lord. They weren't recognising each other. When I come along to, 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 to the church, when I come to share together, when I come to eat the love feast, I'm not supposed to come thinking about me. I'm supposed to come thinking about the Lord and how I can bless others. They were coming along purely concerned with their own selfishness. And part of it was, I'm hungry, I'm not waiting for anyone. Total, utter selfishness. So to recognise the body of the Lord is to realise that this is the covenant meal between a corporate group of Christians who are following the Lord together. And if you're going to say you're right with the Lord, you've got to be right with your brothers and sisters who are gathered with you. This is the corporate aspect of the Lord's Supper. Why? As we're underlining in this talk. The only way we can know whether we're right with God or not is by checking to make sure we're right with our brothers and sisters. And if I am not right with my brothers and sisters when I eat the love feast, I am making a mockery of it. And I'm not just making a mockery of the corporate aspect, I'm making a mockery of the individual aspect. Because the individual aspect is I'm saying, thank you, Jesus, you've forgiven me my sins. And Jesus is saying to me, well, yeah, I've forgiven you your sins, but you've got to make sure you forgive other people their sins and that you're right with them. So to eat the love feast, whilst you've got undealt with sin in your heart towards those who are gathered, or anyone else for that matter, is to make a mockery of the whole thing. Am I reconciled with Jesus? Well, am I reconciled with others? That's the only test that there is. Now, I emphasise, of course, you can't do anything about whether or not others want to be reconciled to you or not. If, if, if people have sinned against you and they don't want to know, or if people have cut you off, or that's, that's none of our concern. We've got to make sure we've forgiven them, that we still love them. That's not what we're talking about. You can be absolutely right with God, whilst other people, sadly even believers, are buying for your blood. 
Okay. Now, as long as they're not paying for your blood because you've sinned against them and not said sorry yet, then there's nothing you can do about it. Often, people will pay for your blood precisely because you're right with God, all right? There's nothing you can do about that. We're talking here about us towards them, and that is a completely different matter. There is also a time where someone may well be paying for your blood, and just wanting to dance on your grave. And I know there are people, I know, believers, sadly, who are looking forward to the day when they can dance on my grave. So I'm going to be buried at sea. <laughs> That'll learn them. Uh, they're mostly Baptists, they'll love it. No, um, and... <laughs> but... There are times, even, when you need to go and say sorry to someone, and you know full well that, 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 that probably the fact that you're going to go and say sorry to them is going to make them even madder than they were before. But if you've sinned against them, you've got to say sorry. I mean, I've known many, many times. I mean, I, I was going to say, what's the hardest time in which to say sorry? Every time. <laughs> but that's me. But there have been times when I've, I've had to say sorry to people, not for what I've said. And I mean, they might be hopping mad with me. But I've had to go and say sorry to them, not for what I've said, but for the way I said it. You know, you've got to know how to do that as well, whether they're paying for your blood or not. But we're talking about from our side. We've got to make sure that we're right with everybody from our side. And this is one of the reasons why in the Lord's Supper, Paul says that we are proclaiming his death. Now, obviously, we're proclaiming his death because it was through his death on the cross that we are saved anyway. But there's another reason that Paul talks about proclaiming the Lord's death. And if you go to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, and in verse 10, And Paul says, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, and Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now we saw what's the real problem that we suffer from. We love ourselves too much. What's the answer to that? We deny ourselves, we take up the cross, we die to self. And proclaiming the Lord's death is that aspect. Yeah, it's saying, wow, Jesus died on the cross, that's how come I'm saved anyway. But the other aspect is, as a believer, I'm called to share in that death. I've got to die to myself because I'm the problem. Therefore, I've got to die to myself. So I've got to proclaim the Lord's death because I share his death. And you remember in, in, in John 12, Jesus spoke to his disciples about a corn of wheat. It's got to go into the ground and die before it, the, the harvest comes. It's the same with us. Each one of us, we've got to know what it is to go into the ground and to die to self. And I'll tell you, it's fellowship that does that in us. 
It's our relationship with other people that God uses to bring that death about. One of the things that I had to discover, and if you haven't discovered this, it isn't because it's not true of you, it's because you haven't discovered it yet. But I discovered that one of my big problems is that I'm so blind to myself. You see, the heart is deceitful. Now, who does my heart deceive more than anyone else? Me. Now, there are things where the Holy Spirit can convict me. Where he can say, Beresford, that was wrong, that's a sin. And I hear it, I know he's convicting me, I say, yes, Lord, that's a sin, I'm sorry. And then if I've got to say sorry to someone else, I can go and do that, all right. But there are other things, you know, we're so blind, we're so insensitive to the Holy Spirit, that there are things where the Holy Spirit would convict me of something, and I didn't even hear it. And I might think, I'd look at myself and thought, no, that's not true of me. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not like that. And it's through my fellowship with other people that after a while, and this, this is over years, but when you're in significant biblical fellowship with people, eventually you will start to see yourself as other people see you. Because you interact so, closest, so closely, you'll actually get to see yourself through their eyes. And I guarantee you will see sins in yourself that you wouldn't have dreamt of. You thought you were much nicer than that. You thought you were much further on in the Lord than that. And it's this fellowship aspect, partly, that is the means that the Lord uses to deal with our sinfulness, to show us our sinfulness. You can't bring an area of your life to the Lord in repentance and surrender if you don't know it's there. And very often, it's fellowship. I mean, we read the Word, but that's not good enough because I read things in the Bible and, and I'm blind to the fact that it's referring to me. But I'll tell you, the rest of the people in my church ain't because <laughs> they know me. And eventually, I'll pick that up because if part of our relationship is correcting each other, I'm not talking about jumping on each other every time. I mean, that, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about friends and brothers and sisters over years. And it keeps your feet on the ground. It makes you realise the truth about yourself. And it's this aspect of fellowship that stops us getting too big for our boots, that, that, that stops us from staying too self-deceived. I remember reading once that uh, one, of, one of Billy Graham's team um, said, if the Lord keeps Billy anointed, we'll keep him humble. And that's right. That's why we need each other. I am very likely to remain deceived about a thousand things about myself as long as it's just down to me. But if I'm in significant fellowship with people who are my extended family, we know each other, we love each other, we trust each other, we've, we've earned that trust with each other. Well, then it's safe to correct each other. I mean, not whacking each other over the head with the Bible. I mean, some, some, some churches... The, 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 the incentive they have for holiness is one sin and you're out. That's not what we're talking about. We're told to bear with one another, to put up with one another. But the point is, in significant fellowship, I'm going to get to understand the things God wants to put right in my life 
through others that I would never in a million years see if it was just, you know, down to me and him. So at every level, our fellowship with each other is vital. One of the scourges of unbiblical church life, one of the scourges of the Christian gospel as it's developed thanks to the early church fathers again, is it's very individualistic. The emphasis is always on you as an individual, what Jesus can do for you. All right. And we are individualistic. Our Western society is. Now, individuality is a good thing. And being in fellowship enhances that. But the enemy is individualism. And we need to get back to understanding this corporateness. That we're sharing our lives in the Lord with each other. You can't go it alone. You and Jesus just ain't enough. Because Jesus says, look, I give you brothers and sisters. You're a family and you can only grow in me individually together. And so what we're basically seeing here is that when it comes to the corporate aspect, when we come to eat the love feast, central to our thinking is, if I'm right with the Lord, and that's the individual aspect, then am I right with my brothers and sisters? That's the corporate aspect. And this meal that we share is not just our individual saying, hey, thanks Jesus for saving me. It's our corporate covenant meal and we're saying, hey, we're in this thing together. We're committed to each other. Now, I mean, obviously the Lord could always move someone on. I'm not saying that once you're in a church, you're there for the rest of your life or you're not committed to it. But the point is, wherever God has put you, at this time, that is your family. Are you right with them? Because that's the only way you'll ultimately know whether you're right with God. And if there are things that need to be put right with people, then the love feast is the time when you must do it. We, we tend to think of it like this. Obviously, as you grow in the Lord, the idea, whether it's your individual sin against Jesus or when you sin with others, the sooner you say sorry, the better. Don't hang on to sin unconfessed. The sooner the better. But when it comes to our corporate life together, we tend to think of it, you've got six days max to be out of fellowship with someone. <laughs> Once that love feast comes along, well, you're in trouble. You've got to put that right. And that's how we think, and that's what we do. There are times at our church when someone won't eat the meal. What they're saying is, oh, I know I've got to say sorry, but not ready yet. Well, okay, that's fine. We'll give them space. We all need space sometime. But they won't eat that meal. I mean, no one's going to be bashing them. We'll get right and eat the meal then, but they won't. we won't eat that meal. And in the Corinthians, they were dropping dead. The Lord was actually taking some of them home. In John, it talks about the sin unto death. My understanding of that, for what it's worth, is that when a believer gets to the point, the Lord says, well, there's no joy leaving you down there, come home, where you can't cause any more damage. Ananias and Sapphira, sin unto death, off they went. And that is what was happening at the Corinthians. Paul says, this is why some of you are weak and ill. Some have died. The judgment of God was coming on them because they were eating that meal without being right with each other. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. It doesn't appear to. It did in the early church. I mean, I'm not, not exactly praying, oh Lord, please, you know, let's see people dropping dead again. I mean, I'm, I'm not in a hurry to see that come back. 
but it was happening back then and it should warn us we should not eat that meal if we are not right in our hearts with our brothers and sisters. And one of the things that we did um, you know, in, 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 in our church in the early years, we don't do it so much now because it's ingrained to us, but you know, before we eat the meal, you know, we take it in turns just to focus ourselves, you know, that this is, this is a very special meal. It's an ordinary meal, but it's a special meal. And uh, you know, we'd often say, you know, whoever was, you know, was sharing, we just give the opportunity, look, if anyone here ain't right with each other, then, you know, down the bottom of the garden, down the yard, go and get right with each other. Sometimes you see little groups of people wander, wander outside, you know, and these little tete-a-tetes going on as people saying, oh, I'm sorry, see? Because at the love feast, any sorries you haven't said, you've got to get them said before you eat. And so here we're seeing the corporate aspect. Jacob and Laban entered a covenant together recognizing that they'd sinned against each other and it had to stop. And so they ratified that covenant together by eating a meal. And in the church, what are we saying? The Lord has forgiven us our sins. We want to stop sinning against the Lord. But if we want to stop sinning against the Lord, it means we're going to want to stop sinning against each other. And where we do, we'll say sorry. And so that is the corporate aspect. It's the covenant meal of the covenant that we struck up, as it were, with each other, saying we're committed to loving each other as Jesus loves us. Now, in the next talk, we're going to look at the future aspect of the Lord's Supper. Yes? One thought here that strikes me, and that is that, you know, as the church transitions through church history, they began to replace the actual full meal together course with a little cracker and a little thimble of, yeah. of juice, the amount of time that it takes to consume that is almost instantaneous. Mm. Whereas you can see the Lord calling the church back to a full meal because oftentimes sitting across the table from somebody in a full meal that mm. you don't want to be reconciled with mm. can take 30, 40 minutes of a meal time of very great discomfort. That's right. Yeah. In the context of that, the Holy Spirit has time to touch mm. your heart. Yeah. and say, you know, you need to work that through. Yeah. 30 seconds or less with a thimble and a cracker, you mm. can push that away and move on with the service. And so I think yeah. it's, a, it's a further justification of why the full meal never should have transitioned yeah. into a cracker and a thimble. Yeah. Let me just add to that, because that is, is, is so true. And one of the things that I often say is when it comes to church life and church practice, if you deviate from what the Bible teaches, you won't just end up with something different. You'll end up with the exact opposite. Now, let me give you examples. One of the things you see in the early church is they didn't have hierarchical leadership, and leadership were a plurality of local brothers raised up in the area. Now, what do we see since the early church fathers? One man at the top imported from the outside. That's not different, it's the exact opposite. We see churches meeting in homes. What do we see since the fathers? Religious buildings. That's not different. That's the opposite. We see the church having open, participatory, free, spontaneous gatherings with no one leading from the front. Not even a front to lead from. It's in a home. What do we see since the early church fathers? Services led by the leaders. That's not different. That's the exact opposite. In regards to the Lord's Supper, 
what do we see? Little bread and cracker services. Now that's not just different, it's the opposite. But here's the point. Everything the Lord does is designed to, to draw your attention to the appropriate thing at the time. Now then, we've seen at communion, or the Lord's Supper, the big push behind it, or one of the big pushes behind it, is not merely your individual relationship with the Lord. It's, are you right with your brothers and sisters? The focus is on them, the body. Now, when you have communion services in unbiblical churches with the bread and the cracker and that's it, it's not a meal, it's just, you know, then what is the push behind it? Individualistic introspection. It's you and the Lord. The push of the love feast is you and your brothers and sisters. So the point is communion services, yeah, the form of them is unbiblical, but because the form is unbiblical, the effect they have is they turn it into the opposite of what it should be. Because at communion services in unbiblical churches, it's you, it's eyes down, you're not looking at anyone, because this is a holy and reverent moment, all right? You're not eyeball to, you know, eyeball to eyeball with your brothers and sisters. It's you and the Lord individually. Well, that's part of it. But we've seen that that, without the corporate aspect, is a farce. And yet communion in unbiblical churches, whereas the love feast calls me to understand the body, my brothers and sisters, unbiblical communion services merely increase this dreadful sense of it's me and Jesus and we're okay. It enhances individualism. Whereas what we want is growing as individuals because we're in right and proper fellowship with each other. Okay, we'll call that one a day there.